Hi, this is James Chow. And this is Hannah Gatahoon. And you're listening to Beach Weekly, a news podcast from the Daily 49er at Long Beach State. Beach Weekly! So for our first story of the day... Rachel got drunk. Yup! Yeah, she did, she did. She, uh, she toured Long Beach's beer scene... You went to five different places, right? We went to four. Four different places, okay. Mm-hmm. And can you tell us a little bit about your experiences there? Uh, what what places you went to? First, we went to Ambitious Ales, which is in Bixby Knolls, and then Smog City at the bottom of Bixby Knolls, Liberation, that's kind of in Bixby Knolls, but like in the middle of Signal Hill in Bixby Knolls. I don't know what that place is. Yes, all the that Heights, Bixby. right? The Heights or whatever. Um, and then 10 Mile, which was in Signal Hill. What was the vibe of each bar? Like, was, was it all different? Yeah, for the most part, each place we went was a pretty different vibe, which I really enjoyed because I got to see not, despite them all serving beer, there's so many different ways to do it. And you had a rating system. So can you tell us a little bit about how you rated each bar? The beer was a big part of it since we were doing a beer tour. But I also thought about the whole ambiance of the place, how it felt. Was there a lot to do there? Or was it just like you're basically sitting around and drinking beer? And the kind of food that they served there. So looking at your rating system, it looks like you had a clear favorite. Smog City Brewery at Steelcraft got five out of five craft beers. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit why this was your favorite place. I know you talk about the food a little too. Mm-hmm. Some cheese waffles. Yes. So uh, Smog City wasn't the only thing at the place. The larger place was called Steelcraft. So they had a lot of like food stalls that was like burgers, pizza. They had ramen and chicken and waffles. And then on the other side, on the outside, they had coffee. They had shave ice. And then they had smog city the brewery in there i liked this place the most because i walked up to the bartenders and i said well i'm not really a beer person what's like the easiest drink to get to like ease me into beer so that i'm not disgusted when i take a sip and they immediately jumped in started giving me samples and they were like well what's the thing that you like the most what's this and they started asking me a lot of questions and i really appreciated their knowledge on beer and that's what helped me the most in choosing the white peach saison which was a sour beer and was so good i didn't know that beer could be yummy like that so i was really happy and then i got vegetable gyoza there which was delicious and then ambitious ales it didn't do too hot got three out of five craft beers the lowest score so can you tell us why we still felt it was a good brewery Because it only opened in February, like last month, and they had a really good selection of beers. It just wasn't, it wasn't a lot compared to the other places, and there wasn't much to do there. And the crowd was like older, it was smaller than the other places we went to. The beer was still good. Everybody said that their beer was good. It's just the fact that we would just be sitting around drinking and we were going to be really bored. Given the amount of money you spent and the time that you consumed going to all these places for your brewery crawl, was it worth it? I think it was because I went into this night dreading drinking beer because I really hated beer before this. But at the end of the night, I had such a good time. 
experiencing Long Beach and the beer scene that we have, there wasn't a single beer that I didn't like. That really surprised me. So yeah, I felt like it was totally worth it. Would you go on another brewery crawl? Probably. Been a whole different places. Long Beach is such a huge place that I feel like only reviewing four places wasn't enough. Even just deviating away from brewery crawls, would you go on like a taco crawl, a a restaurant crawl, like other kinds of crawls? Ooh, I would do a winery crawl so fast. I love wine. (laughs) We are also thinking about doing a coffee crawl, like later on. Do go to like local coffee shops and be a lot less inebriating than this situation. (laughs) We'd be able to probably say a bit more because I know more about coffee than I know about beer. But that cold brew, nitro brew. French press. You swear you're going to leave this in the podcast? You're just like <laughs> listing off coffees. It's <laughs> just going to be the rest of the this, podcast. This is literally just me listing off any word I see on the coffee bean menu at school. Damon Lawrence is an active Long Beach community member. He serves Los Angeles Fire Department. He has six children and he has a front yard garden. He also is trying to start Long Beach's first cooperative grocery store. Our reporter Perry Continente wrote a little profile on Damon Lawrence and his ambition to start a co-op. So Perry, tell us what co-ops in general, what are they? So co-ops are sort of community-run businesses. So for example, in the case of this grocery store, it's a lot of people who've come in and bought a share, essentially. It's $250, and they all govern and run this business together. They're also very community-minded. So Mr. Lawrence has a plan to uh, help Long Beach's homeless population, largely through funding. Uh, he, he actually has a plan to hire for uh, part-time workers, people who are homeless and who have recently been homeless. So essentially these organizations are very community-minded, run by a panel of community members who buy into it and are a business model that allows wealth to be distributed more evenly along the ladder. And so how does like that like say employment opportunities for the homeless. How does that work? I was ta- when I was talking to Mr. Lawrence, and I don't think this part made it into the article, but he was mentioning that they would be hiring homeless people to like bag maybe for just two hours a week, you know, because there's a lot of people who have drug or mental problems, and just sort of like ease them into working and just pay them a good wage, which I thought was an interesting idea because these people are so frequently marginalized. Getting a job while homeless is next to impossible. So you talk a lot about how Lawrence is trying to give back to the community. Mm -hmm. For example, he's trying to give jobs to people who experience homelessness. Is there sort of a reason that he feels he needs to step up and try to help the community? Well, he mentioned uh, he went to business school, so he has like an economic background. That's how he's approaching this. He was in Oregon on a vacation and he came across a co-op. And when he started hearing about it, he started asking questions He went up to one of the baggers and he thought, well, somebody's getting exploited here. And after a conversation with the guy who worked there, he realized that this particular co-op was more equitable in the way it was distributing things. And so that kind of stuck in his head. And it was when the grocery store in Rose Park went out 
And after a letter writing campaign to like Trader Joe's, like I think Albertsons, various other places, all of them said it did not meet their demographics. He viewed it as the grocery store chains failing that neighborhood. And as a way to fix that failure, he in a meeting discussed a co-op because he thought that that could adequately fill the neighborhood's needs. And uh, so he, in a very proactive way, went about fixing that problem. So it says he wants to launch this grocery store, but is this something that he's been finding support in the community? Yeah, he, he started a Facebook page and it pretty much immediately got a bunch of likes. One of the people who he saw support from was Michelle Burns. She was part of a co-op up in Eureka. A lot of what they've been doing is trying to educate people about what exactly they're doing, like why you would buy a share, why you would shop here, you know, how they're gonna give back to the community, their like mission statement. And that hurdle, the hurdle of people just not knowing what this is, has been uh, major for them, according to uh, Mr. Lawrence. And where exactly in the process of establishing a co-op are they? Well, they are looking for a space to put it in. Uh, Mr. Lawrence said that he'd been to about 20 different places, some of which had been you know, very short, some of which had gotten almost to the end. So they need to find a place. But other than that, they're looking at about one and a half to two year time period to get this up and running. And are there other ways that the co-op will be giving back to the community? Yeah, well, uh, he was talking about how rather than doing independent philanthropic work, they want to take a portion of the co-op's funding, which will be decided by the board, which are the people who buy those $250 shares, you know, so they get a percentage. And then they're going to be deciding also what percentage of the profits will be funneled to other programs. Uh, he mentioned that there are a lot of these programs that he, he says that, like, we know that they work, we know that these help communities, but they run out of funding. And so the co-op can be kind of an auxiliary way to fund these social programs instead of just having them fizzle out. And what kind of inspired him to... In terms of, like, what inspired him, uh, he did mention his children. And he does have two three-year-old daughters. And he mentioned, because there is an environmental aspect to this. They're going to be focusing on organic, locally grown foods, which... Coming from a farming family, I can say that like something that was picked that day versus something that was picked two weeks and that's what you're getting at like a big box store. They're vastly different in quality. So they're going to be supporting local farmers and paying farm workers more, paying those farmers more, paying those farm workers more. And he hopes that that will be more environmentally productive. So there is, uh, he did mention global warming and his children, uh, he said, like, what are we going to leave? What is he going to be leaving his children? And he hopes that through this, in some small way, he can leave a better world for them. It's located in the city of Bill Garden. But it's, it's, I mean, it's small enough for two people to grow stuff, I have to say. No, we don't own it. Um, we lease it with Edison. Our neighbors, they got, they, they got kicked out, so we thought they were going to kick it out too. I am kind of scared, you know, as far as like, probably, you know, say neck down no more. Farming under the wire. Our daily 49er staff embarked on an ambitious project to tell a story of the Ornelas family farm. The story came out Thursday and is an experimental storytelling endeavor presented through a combination of text, photos, and video. Our co-host Hannah Gatahun covered the story alongside multimedia managing editor Paula Calais and news editor Austin Brumblay. Hannah and Paula are here to talk about it. So can you tell me a little bit of what the struggles are for the uh, for farming under the Edison line? The story is called Farming Under the Wire because like the big part of the story is the fact that this family farm is under the Edison line. And one of their biggest struggles is the fact that Southern California Edison is essentially pushing 
farms that are under the their power line out they don't want people to be growing in the soil they want them to be growing in pots and of course that affects their yield and of course that affects how much money they make it affects their livelihood it affects their lives that's kind of like the biggest dilemma in this story for the ornella family Mm -hmm. so like they said that for now they're safe though they had been seeing some of their neighbors having to comply with this rule but as of now they don't have to comply with this rule that Edison apparently is making some farmers comply with, which is that they have to pot their produce, but they're afraid that they're going to have to eventually comply with this rule, which will serve as a detriment to their operation. And can you talk a little bit about the farm, like when you went there? Uh, what Do you see what do they grow? Yeah, they grow a lot. There's cilantro and spinach. It sounded like those were their like biggest sellers, especially the cilantro. Talking to Edgar, and he was talking about how the one they sold was a little more fragrant than the cilantro that they sold in supermarkets. And so that was like something that a lot of people were buying from them. They grew watercress, dandelions. There was a lot. And this was just for this season. There's a lot um, that they grow, and it's funny because their acre, so it's such a small plot of land, but there's a lot that they grow. Yeah, and how did you guys get in contact with the Ornelas family? When Carlos, our special projects editor, pitched this whole food special issue, I knew I wanted to do a story related to farming. So I went to a couple farmer's markets in Long Beach. I went to the Bixby Knowles Farmer's Market. It was difficult to find a farm that was willing to do this story or help us out with the story. And this was like one of my last attempts. So we went to the Bixby Knowles Farmer's Market I met Edgar. He was super cool. I had a larger scale farm. So when he said that his farm was small, honestly, I was a little like discouraged because I was like, oh, it's not really what I'm looking for. But I'm so glad that like we took on the story because it's way more interesting than the same old million acre farm that you always read about. You talk a lot about Edgar, but he also works with his dad. So can you talk about the father son relationship that they have? Edgar's dad, Jose, he he's shyer. He's yeah. a little shyer than Edgar, but he is an important part of the farm operation. Actually, he's the one who started the farm in the first place. Edgar came later to help out with the whole operation. Edgar was talking about how his father was so helpful in teaching him how to farm and how to farm efficiently and he's he was talking about how his dad was such a handy guy and he knew everything about everything anytime we would ask edgar a question he'd answer it but he'd always preface like hey my dad probably knows more about this because his dad was just so knowledgeable about like farm culture and his dad did start farming um back when he lived in mexico so his, um, when they moved here, he brought farming with him from Mexico. He says that like his father was like instrumental in making sure that the farm, you know, stayed alive. And you mentioned earlier about like kind of the controversy of them farming under the Edison line. So if they were to get booted, do they have backup plans? Well, that was a little bit unclear, I guess. Well, when we asked Edgar about it, essentially it seems that he's, he is a bit afraid, but he seems confident enough in his family's resilience that they can get through whatever Edison might throw at them. He talked about if, if they're going to have to pot, 
their plants and they'll pot it. They'll see how that works out. Said my dad, he's the genius. Like he'll, he's such a hard worker. He'll figure something out. Like it just shows you how much he believes in his father and like how much he trusts that his father will get them through whatever might happen to this farm. Uh, this isn't a normal, typical print story that you see or like a, a video story. This is a combination of different multimedia elements. So what made you guys want to pursue or an experiment this kind of storytelling? So on the Daily 49er, we have video, we have text, we have photo. However, we have never actually experimented with putting all three of those together to form one cohesive story. A lot of the times we'll have photo and video within a story, but it never actually like connects and it's never a part of the story. So what we wanted to try to do this time is have a package where you have video, you have photo, you have text, but it all works together to tell one story. And so I think with the Adobe Spark format, it's a lot more immersive. It's like you're reading through an article, but it has all these like fun elements that like would grab a reader. It tells the story a lot better. You're like reading and then you get into a video and it has a lot more like sensory details. Like you hear the farm and you hear Edgar's voice and you can't really do that on a, just a story. And then we have a lot of photos. Like the layout is just so nice. I love it. Everything works together and it's, it's like you're reading one article, you're reading mm -hmm. one story. So we wanted to experiment with that concept just because it's something we haven't done before, but now that we did it and now it looks really nice, in my opinion. Yeah, it's definitely like a different experience we can offer to our readers because there's just so many different ways you can view a story. And I think with a story like this one, where their farm isn't your typical farm, like if you were to write about this farm, I don't think you would get the same sense of what it really is. Because even when I met Edgar at the farmer's market and he told me, yeah, we have like a little farm under the Edison line. I had no idea what to expect when I showed up. And when I got there and you see like this lush piece of land and it's it's surrounded by like these towers and it, you have to see it, I think, too. You have to hear it. And those are things that you can't really get with text. But at the same time, when it comes to videos and photos, sometimes you can't get that context that text can provide. And so a multimedia story kind of gives you all of that. That's a podcast. Yay! I'm gonna go pee. <laughs>